Well, we continue on in our sermon series through the book of Psalms. So you are aware we are going to continue in the Psalms till the end of the month, uh, at, at which time, as we usually do, I will do a uh, topical series for the month of October. That topic will be mission. And let me put a plug in for the members meeting tonight. Tonight, one of the things we're going to talk about is some of the mission of this church. Uh, I'm going to bring to your attention again our plans for global church planting and what that looks like going forward, as well as us hearing from John. And he's got some information about the youth and their uh, mission trip, which looks like it will be uh, brought uh, next year uh, for something for the uh, uh, senior highs to be able to do like we used to do at Mission Peru. So I encourage you to be there. But for today, we look at Psalm 85. My sermon is entitled, Restore Us, Revive Us. In Psalm 85, we hear the plea of the psalmist, restore us, revive us. These requests are so pronounced in how the psalm reads that they had to be the title of my sermon. I couldn't see it any other way. Now those words, especially the word revive, can get us thinking about the great Christian revivals of history. Perhaps when you hear that word, you think of the Welsh revival of 1904, which is said to have resulted in over 100,000 converts being added to the church. Or maybe you think of Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield and the First Great Awakening and its impact on the American colonies. Regardless of what comes to mind, the idea of revival is part of the imagination and the desires of Christians throughout the world. In 1959, British pastor and theologian Martin Lloyd-Jones preached 24 sermons to mark the centennial anniversary of the great transatlantic revival of 1859, sometimes called the Ulster Revival. Revival was something that he cared deeply about. In one of those sermons, he lays out the stages of revival. The first stage of revival he calls realizing the need and confronting the sin. The second stage he calls mourning for sin. The third stage, he gives the title urgent prayer and intercession. And the final stage he calls show me your glory when the fire falls. Now, I don't intend to preach on revival specifically this morning. I intend to preach the text. But we would do well as we start to note that the four stages of revival as laid out by Lloyd-Jones parallel Psalm 85 very closely. We see stage one as the psalmist realizes and recognizes the need of God's people. They are under the judgment of God, and that judgment is due to their sin, and they are confronting their sin in the psalm. And as the word lament indicates, they mourn for their sin, and they mourn for the results of that sin on their nation. And this corresponds with Lloyd-Jones's second stage. Now this psalm, like stage three, is also an urgent prayer of intercession for God's people and their difficulties. And finally, like stage four, they're asking for the glory and the grace of God to fall on their nation. So with those things in mind, let us take a look at this psalm 
take a look as God's people pray that he would restore them, that he would revive them. And let us consider how we might apply it today. Point number one, turning because of the past. God's grace in the past causes God's people to turn to them in their trouble. Now, since this psalm doesn't give us a specific time of composition, it's not revealed, many commentators guess at it, but we don't know, we can engage with it as just a general lament, a general lament of God's people for healing, certainly spiritual healing and societal healing as well. In turning to God, the psalmist notes that in the past, God showed his people favor. And in the past, he did a work of restoration, moving them to a more prosperous condition. And as so often is the case, it is the recollection of the works of God in the past that eventually moved the psalmist to prayer and then to praise. This past work of restoration was, it seems, primarily a spiritual restoration. Why do I say that? Well, the Lord in the past had graciously forgiven his people. The psalmist says, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. Now, the words used here are interesting. The word translated forgave is a word that literally means to lift. God had lifted the iniquity of his people. And iniquity is a word for for talking about sin. And it refers to the bentness or the crookedness of humanity. And this spiritual crookedness considers sin as that which is premeditated and that which is willful. It's a sin that is often regarded as an intensified type of evil. And that type of sinning, of course, incurs God's righteous wrath It incurs his righteous and just judgment. Those who are guilty of iniquity, God directs his wrath and judgment to. And that guilt is the burden that God lifts. God's favor and restoration is also, we're told, the covering of their sin. And the covering of sin signifies God's pardon. Now, when we talk about God covering sin, you ought to think about that in terms of maybe a friend covering your bill at the restaurant. It's not suggesting that a veil is put over your bill. No, actually, your debt has been paid. What you owe has been removed. God took care of, he covered the sins of Israel. And their restoration is the result. And though the iniquity and sin of his people resulted in God's wrath and the ensuing judgment, the restoration of God's people through the lifting of the burden of guilt and the covering of their sins meant that God had been propitiated. We read, you withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Now remember, propitiation is the appeasing and removal of wrath through sacrifice. And this is part of the gracious restoration that God had done in the past. And so we see in the first three verses of this lament that as the psalmist turns to God, 
that a gospel framework actually emerges. We see in this a God who clearly desires to have relationship with humans, to have relationship with the people that he has created, to have relationship with the people who owe him their love and their worship. We also see people. People who have sinned, who have missed the mark of God's commands through their disobedience and who have willfully rejected God's ways and thus reject God himself. We also see the righteous wrath of God, the just judgment of God against sin and iniquity. And we see the graciousness of God. The graciousness of God who removes guilt, who covers the sin, whose wrath is removed. This is the pattern of the gospel. Now we must note that the psalmist is lamenting. Because God's people have got themselves in the same situation that he had dealt with many years ago. They are in the same situation again. And that's why the psalmist recalls what God did back then, because he wants God to do that now in the present. Let us understand this morning that the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that this restoration of God's people has been accomplished once for all. Those who are God's people through faith in Jesus Christ never need to pray that God would once again save like he did in the time of Jesus. No, Jesus' work of forgiveness was once for all. It's occurred in the past. It never needs to happen again. The book of Hebrews says he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Hebrews 9, 26. Believer, follower of Jesus, Your Savior has accomplished already what the psalmist here laments for. Never forget that. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, understand that this is the good news that we believe and we build our lives on. The problem of our sin, which separates us from God and incurs his wrath and judgment, it has already been addressed in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Forgiveness and restoration and salvation, they're all available through faith in Christ. There is salvation in Jesus. There is forgiveness in Jesus. There is reconciliation with God through Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're an unbeliever, I would encourage you, to believe and trust in him this morning. God is a gracious God. He has shown us his favor in Christ, and he showed his grace and his favor to his people in times long past. And because of that, the psalmist here turns to God as he laments. And as his lamenting continues, the psalmist moves from this turning to God to bring to God his complaints and to ask God in the present. Point number two, complaining and asking in the present. The current suffering of the people gives rise to godly complaints and confident 
requests. We've seen this several times this summer. We've learned this lament structure. Now, this lament structure is not as clean and tidy in Psalm 85 as it is in some of the other Psalms. We see in verses four through seven, the godly complaints which describe the situation the people of God are in. And we see their confident petitions that ask God for help. But in Psalm 85, they're a little mixed up. They're not divided so cleanly. I see the psalmist bringing his complaints to God in verses five and six, with verses four and seven be the, being the asking of God. Five and six, verses five and six, we see the familiar rhetorical questions. And those are a way of the psalmist indicating their current situation, their current context the reason for the lament. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again that your people may rejoice in you? We can see what they're going through from these questions. The psalmist laments because God's people are under his wrath, presumably for their sinful waywardness. And this judgment has been going on for a considerable amount of time. The people are spiritually dead. They need reviving. They are sorrowful and they are weary and they desire to rejoice. And so they bring their complaints to God. And this is perhaps a good time to remind ourselves about godly complaining. Consider these words written by Mark Verogop, in the book on lament that I've recommended multiple times called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. Quote, after we take the first step of turning to God in prayer, the next is bringing our complaints to him. There is a tension here. I'm sure you already feel it. Complain isn't a very positive word. We don't like complainers. It seems like the wrong response to situations where we should be content or thankful. But is that always the case? Is complaining always wrong? It can't be. If you read the Psalms of Lament, you'll discover a lot of creative complaining. You'll find expressions of sorrow, fear, frustration, and even confusion. In other words, the Bible is full of complaints, and apparently they aren't all sinful. In fact, they were set to music as an entire congregation sang their frustration. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not giving you permission to vent self-centered rage at God when life has not turned out like you planned. I'm not suggesting for a second you have a right to be angry with God. I think that that is always wrong. But I do think that there is a place for a kind of complaining that is biblical, end quote. And I think he's right. And I think the Psalms of Lament teach us how to complain in a godly manner. The complaining that we see in the book of Psalms is, has several characteristics. And we must keep these in mind as we bring our complaints to God. First, complaining in biblical lament is done with humility. Again, the author Mark Vrogop notes, Proud, demanding questions from a heart that believes it is owed something from God will never lean into true lament. Before you start complaining, be sure you've checked arrogance at the door. Come with your pain, not your pride. And that's why I think the complaints in the form of questions are helpful. 
The questions indicate that we don't have all the answers. We cannot see the end from the beginning. And so we can come humbly. Secondly, godly complaints are rooted in faith. They're rooted in faith in a God who hears us, faith in a God who cares for us, faith in a God who is powerful enough and wise enough to deal with our hurt and our pain and our suffering and our frustrations. And so we bring our complaints in faith. Thirdly, godly complaints are truthful. We need to learn to be honest with God when we pray. He is our loving Father. We can go to him with those things that we suffer from and are hurt from. We should be honest with him. We can bring our complaints to God as the Psalms of lament indicate. But as we do so, let's do so humbly, truthfully, and with faith. And let us remember as we bring those complaints to God that this is part of a process. Part of a process that moves us from bringing our complaints to God to asking for his help. That's what we see in the Psalms. Psalm 85 is asking God for help. We see this in verses four and seven. Restore us again, O God of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now that first request is in the form of an effect and a cause. What is the effect? The people would be restored to him. What is the cause of that restoration? God removes his indignation, removes his anger. And we see that this request is brought with confidence and with trust. The psalmist addresses God as the God of our salvation. In Psalm 3, the psalmist cries out, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Well, how does the psalmist reply in Psalm 3, verse 3 and 4? You, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. It is to a God that saves that the psalmist makes requests. Show us your steadfast love is another request, and it's a very specific appeal. The steadfast love of the Lord refers to his covenantal loyal love. It is an appeal to God to fulfill his covenant promises. And they're asking God to be gracious. They know that they cannot ask for justice. So they appeal to his mercy and kindness and love. Restore us, remove our sin, revive us, love us, Save us. These are the petitions of lament. Commentator Alan P. Ross sums it up nicely. Whatever their actual circumstances, they are praying for an end to the darkness of divine displeasure through a great deliverance from their prolonged suffering. And so the psalmist has turned to God because of the past. 
The psalmist has made godly complaints and the psalmist has made confident requests in the present. And so what does our framework for lament teach us that we should expect? At the end of this psalm, we should expect trusting in God. And this psalm does it, and it does it with a flourish. Point number three, trusting for the future. The psalmist, through this process of lament, arrives at a place where he hopefully expects restoration, where he hopefully expects revival as God's people's lives have been reoriented towards him. What does the psalmist trust God for in these closing verses of Psalm 85? Well, he trusts that the Lord will speak peace. Now, that's an interesting phrase, speak peace. Not that he will perform peace, not that he will cause peace, but that he will speak peace. The NIV application commentary notes that it is the ordinary word for speaking that is used. But of course, the concept is far from ordinary. For speech is the means by which God accomplishes that which he accomplishes. The speech of God is a creative act. It brings things into being. It transforms reality. The voice of God creates a new reality. From nothing, God's speech brings order and beauty beyond imagination. It is this same creative speech that declares a new spiritual reality into the being, into being for the people of God. And so the psalmist trusts God to speak peace. The psalmist also trusts God that salvation is near. Though they have suffered, though they have been mired in sin, though his wrath has been heavy upon them, salvation is near to those who fear God. Salvation is near to those who look to God in reverence. Salvation is near to those who repent before God in humility. And salvation is near to those who obey God with diligence. Now the next verses, the next verse, verse 10, is beautiful. It grabs our attention. It's heartwarming and perhaps in some ways a startling image. We read, steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss together or sorry, kiss each other. It was interesting to read that verse in some other translations. The New American Standard Bible says, graciousness and truth have met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The King James Version says, mercy and truth are met together, righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The Christian Standard Bible says, faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. What's the meaning of these verses? I think that they describe both a tension for humanity and at the same time, they describe the gracious and all-encompassing attributes of God to save. Here's what I mean. There is a tension for humanity. There is a tension for God's people in these four characteristics, in these four attributes, steadfast love, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. Those four words represent the benefits 
of a covenant with God as well as the expectations or obligations of a covenant with God. God has promised his people steadfast love and peace and he expects from his people their faithfulness and their righteousness. God's covenant with Israel is where these things meet. It's where they embrace. It's where they kiss. But the tension that's there, for those of you who are tracking, is that we understand we utterly fail at our obligations. We far too often show faithlessness in our lives instead of faithfulness. We pursue idols of comfort and power and fame and wealth and health and so many other worldly pursuits. And we pursue them at the expense of our relationship with and at the expense of our faithfulness to God. And so we're not in so many ways faithful. We're also not righteous. We far too often walk in unrighteousness. We walk in Ways like are laid out in Mark 7, 21 through 23. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. And so there's a tension here. We see this beautiful image of God, a God of steadfast love, a God who brings peace. But we know We don't always walk in faithfulness. We don't always walk in righteousness. We've been given this steadfast love. We've been given this peace and we respond with unfaithfulness and unrighteousness. So there's a tension there. And yet, as I said, these verses also describe the gracious, all-encompassing attributes of God to save his people. You see, in God the Son, all four of these attributes come together in a glorious picture of a loving, peace-giving Savior who saved us through his own faithfulness and his own righteousness. Let's take a look at that for a moment this morning. Consider the Savior's love for us. Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of his love, leading onward, leading homeward to thy glorious rest above. The love of Jesus for God's people is attested to in our hymns. And more importantly than that, it's attested to in Scripture. John 15, 13 says, greater love has no man than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. Galatians 2, 20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus also gives peace to God's people. John 14, 27, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Romans 5, 1, therefore, 
since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we see those marvelous attributes in the Son of God, but what astounds us, what astounds us about the new covenant is that God also fulfills our obligations. Through Jesus, God becomes our faithful representative. He becomes our righteous surrogate. We are unfaithful, we are unrighteous, and yet he was faithful and he was righteous as our representative. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the faithful witness and the faithful and true witness. 1 verse 5, 3 verse 14. He's also described in Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. Canadian theologians and professors Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham write in their book, Kingdom Through Covenant, these words. Throughout the entire canon, God's promises are rooted in his sovereign initiative to save. For without his unilaterally acting, we as the entire human race are without hope. God must act and God alone. But ultimately, that action requires the provision of a faithful son through whom all God's promises are brought to pass. Brothers and sisters, Jesus was the faithful son, the faithful son on our behalf. And Jesus was also the righteous son. In John, 1 John 2, 1, the apostle John calls God the Son, Jesus Christ the righteous. And the apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Christ, we become the righteousness of God because Jesus is righteous and he was righteous for us. Brothers and sisters, it is our glorious Savior, Jesus Christ, and the new covenant wrought by God that sees steadfast love and faithfulness meet. It is in the beautiful and only begotten Son of God that righteousness and peace kiss each other. Jesus is steadfast in his love. Jesus gives us peace. Christ was faithful and righteous on our behalf. And so even as we perceive the psalmist trusting God in the words, yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase, we also declare our trust in God by saying the Lord has given us what is good. He has given us his son. And the son will increase until all creation is restored in him. And so how should we respond to this glorious good news of a loving, faithful, righteous, and peace-giving savior? How do we respond? Well, let's go back to that tension, that tension that we felt in those verses. Because even as the people of God in the old covenant were called to be faithful in worshiping God and called to be righteous in their obedience to God, we of the new covenant are called to the same things. 
We're called to be faithful. We're called to be righteous. However, because of Jesus Christ, we do not pursue faithfulness and righteousness for our salvation, but from our salvation. Let me say that again. Because of Jesus Christ, we do not pursue faithfulness and righteousness for our salvation, but from our salvation. It's because we are saved that we pursue those things, not so that we will be saved. It's because of the steadfast love of Jesus that we can be righteous, that we can be obedient. John 15, 9 and 10 says, As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. And Paul said of himself in 1 Corinthians 4, 1 and 2, that this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And I believe we should say those same words. We should be found faithful. And thankfully, Paul also reminds us that faithfulness is a gift of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things there is no law. So brothers and sisters, we are called to pursue faithfulness. And we are called to pursue righteousness, not for our salvation, but from our salvation. And we are to do so in the power of the Spirit and by the grace of Christ. And when we fail, when we instead pursue other things, things like we read about in Galatians 5, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. When we pursue these things, we repent. And we confess our sins. And we receive the forgiveness that Christ won for us on the cross. And even as the psalmist lamented for God to restore and revive his people when their sin had debilitated and degraded their worship of God, so we look to God to forgive us and to restore us and to revive us and to love us. But we do so in and through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the Psalms and we thank you for Psalm 85. Father God, I would think on each of your people's hearts this morning would be the desire that you would restore them and revive them. And Father God, I, I pray that you would help all of us to understand that the work of salvation, the work of forgiveness, the work of restoration that Christ did was once for all. We don't need to pray for it to happen again. But Father God, we do need to pray, Lord, that you would help us, that you would help us to lean into Christ and all that he's done that we would confess our sins and receive that forgiveness and through the power of the Spirit pursue faithfulness and righteousness. 
And Father God, I pray that you would remind us this week and remind unbelievers this week the tension that we feel in this psalm, the tension that our sin creates, the tension because you love us and you want to give us peace, but we sin and we're unfaithful and unrighteousness. And help both believer and unbeliever in regards to that this week. Help us to call out to Christ that we might find restoration, that we might find revival in him. We pray this in his name, amen.